0: This is the Green Street News. Patty and Doug Wood and our network of experts with your weekly update on environmental health. Welcome back. On today's show, we're going to talk about breast cancer and the link between the personal care products that line the shelves of America's drugstores and supermarkets and how they can drastically increase your risk of developing breast cancer. We'll talk with an attorney who organized a unique study and advises people to think carefully about the products they use in and on their bodies. That and the week's environmental headlines all coming up on this edition of Green Street News. Stay with us. All right, Patty. So what happened in the world of environmental health this week?
1: Well, as always, we're going to have to have an article on PFAS. This is the chemical class of our time. Yeah. Really, it is. So this one is from Associated Press, and it was written by Lisa Rathke. And the title is U.S. states consider ban on cosmetics with, quote, forever chemicals, which are PFAS. Mm -hmm. A growing number of state legislatures are considering bans on cosmetics and other consumer products that contain a group of synthetic, potentially harmful chemicals known as PFAS. In Vermont, the state Senate gave final approval recently to legislation that would prohibit manufacturers and suppliers from selling or distributing any cosmetics or menstrual products in the state that have perfluoroalkyl and polyfluoroalkyl substances, as well as a number of other chemicals. The products include shampoos, makeup, deodorant, sunscreens, hair dyes, and more. California, Colorado, and Maryland passed similar restrictions on cosmetics that go into effect in 2025. Other proposals are under consideration in Washington and Oregon, while bills have also been introduced in Illinois, Rhode Island, and Georgia. How many times do we have to talk about this? Why doesn't the federal government do something? I know that they have come out with a standard for drinking water, which is impossible almost for anybody to deal with, right? right? Yeah. But they have come up with a standard and now they have to look at these chemicals in everyday products that people are using over and over and over and over.
0: It's amazing that they're leaving this up to the states to do something yeah. that the yeah. federal government really should do. I mean, Absolutely. I guess that because the chemical lobby is just too strong in, in Washington.
1: In March, the Environmental Protection Agency proposed the first federal limits on the chemicals in drinking water, saying the protection will save thousands of lives and prevent serious illnesses, including cancer.
0: So, what I don't understand is, I understand that you can't just immediately take the products off the shelves, right? Manufacturers have made them, stores have stocked them, and you have to run through your stock. But why are we just. Why do you
1: have to run through your stock if you know that it causes cancer and all these other problems? Well,
0: but what I was going to ask is okay, putting that aside, I think that's a valid question. But why are we allowing them to be made anymore? Why aren't we stopping the know. manufacture of know. these chemicals now?
1: Right. Well, researchers have tested more than 230 commonly used cosmetics and found that 56% of foundation and eye products, Mm -hmm. 48% of lipsticks, and 47% of mascaras contain fluorine, which is an indicator of the presence of PFAS. But this is a final word on this one. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration the good old FDA, says on its website that there have been few studies of the presence of PFAS and cosmetics, and the ones published found the concentrations are at very low levels.
0: People who wear makeup going to want to listen to the rest of this program because we have a really, really interesting guest who's going to be talking about cosmetics and kids breast and breast cancer Right. coming up later in the show. Okay, what else you got?
1: Okay, the C word. Firefighters are pushing for better cancer protection. This is from CBC News, Canadian broadcast, and written by Nicholas Frew. Ames, Leslie, and his wife were grocery shopping when he felt a sharp pain on the left side of his torso. Concerned he was suffering from an appendicitis, Leslie rushed to the emergency room. Doctors and nurses tested him for hours, ruling out diagnoses one by one. They believed that he had testicular cancer. A urologist confirmed the diagnosis the following weeks. Four days later, he was in surgery getting tumors removed. At 44 years old, Leslie had been in good health otherwise. Two weeks before his diagnosis, he had passed a physical exam. But as a firefighter, Leslie had exposed himself to carcinogens almost every day for more than half of his life. Last summer, the International Agency for Research on Cancer, IARC, the specialized cancer agency of the World Health Organization declared firefighting as a group one carcinogen, meaning that it found sufficient evidence to link the job to a risk of certain cancers. It's one of only five occupational exposures to receive this designation. Wow. Yes, yeah, so it's, it's it's a big time exposure and a big time risk to be a firefighter today. The firefighters often describe their job as a calling. Most choose the vocation as a way to give back to their communities, regardless of the risks that come with jumping into a fire. But the IARC designation and other emerging research on cancer risk have forced firefighters to reconcile that flames aren't the only thing they need to be most concerned about. What
0: can you do for firefighters? I don't know. I mean, these but, guys are doing us a real service. Some, you know.
1: Some manufacturers of occupational equipment like this have got to stop it and we know that kids who are playing little league football are playing in uniforms that also contain PFAS we're talking about little kids they're so excited to put these uniforms on yeah right has their name on the back their number and PFAS yeah okay okay and one more thing about chemicals. I'm sorry, this is a this is chemical a chemical feast. soup here. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And this is actually an op-ed written by Linda Birnbaum, who's the former director of the National Institute for Environmental Health Sciences. And it is entitled, Why is the chemical industry pitting public health against economic growth? Recent reporting on the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency's new proposed rules that would restrict or ban an array of toxic chemicals used in industrial manufacturing presented the regulation as a, quote, tough choice for a White House seeking to balance its economic agenda and public health. And Linda responds by saying the public health versus economic growth framing is unhelpful and demonstrably false. The only tough choice to be made is whether to stick with an outdated and toxic model that benefits a few regressive companies or to focus on innovation in chemistry that catches up to our competitors abroad and saves on American medical bills. To understand why, let's tally the cost of continuing business as usual. A report just published estimates that in 2015, the health-related cost of plastic production, the single most common use of industrial chemical manufacturing today, exceeded $250 billion globally. And in the U.S. alone, the annual health costs of disease and disability caused by only four industrial chemicals, PBDE, bpa DEHP and PFAS approach a staggering $1 trillion. Considering that there are more than 86,000 industrial chemicals in circulation, it seems likely that the actual health costs are much, Mm -hmm. much higher. So I just want to go back for a second. The PBDE is a flame retardant. BPA, you know, is an additive to plastics. Okay, and they also use it cash in cans receipts. and you know, bo- you know, yeah, exactly, cash register receipts and all that. Um, and then DEHP is diethylhexyl phthalate, okay, which is used in plastic gloves and those kinds of things. Of it makes uses. it mm-hmm. makes it makes plastic flexible and soft. And PFOs, which is this whole class of about you know twelve thousand chemicals. Per and polyfluoroalkyl substances. The health related costs. Just cost, those four. What did you write down? You wrote the something health-related, down.
0: The health related costs of plastic production, the health costs, mm-hmm. the cost that everybody else is bearing for the plastic industry $250 billion a year.
1: $250 billion.
0: Our gift to the plastic industry so they can continue to make plastics.
1: Correct. But there are serious climate risks, too, as Linda Birnbaum says. A 2022 study from Sweden found that petrochemicals are responsible for a tenth of global greenhouse gas emissions when researchers evaluate their full life cycle, which might include everything from a fracking well in Pennsylvania to a raft of styrofoam disintegrating in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. So critically, the plastics and petrochemicals industry has known about the health-harming effects of its products for decades. Yet rather than remove the chemicals from use and develop safe alternatives, the industry doubled down on defending their products, resulting in the universal PFAS contamination that can be found in every American and every American community today. Status quo chemistry is costing us money and shortening our lives. To make matters worse, it's also standing in the way of necessary innovation and likely impairing economic growth, but not incorporating the cost of health and environmental harms of petrochemical production and use. The existing industry enjoys an artificially low cost of doing business, thus hindering new researchers and companies seeking to develop healthier, more sustainable chemical products.
0: That's an interesting point, that we are, by helping to subsidize these plastic manufacturers, we're standing right. in the way of better exactly. better products, safer products, and so on.
1: Right. And she ends by saying, and she's just such a brilliant scientist, she's yeah. just wonderful, but... The last thing she has to say here in this op-ed is now is the time to unleash the innovative brilliance of American scientists and companies in pursuit of chemistry that is truly safe and sustainable by design, from the production facility to the store shelves and into our homes. Our health and our climate cannot wait another moment.
0: Amen. All right. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome. Breast cancer has been a scourge for women around the world for generations. Everyone knows someone who's been affected, as a patient, a parent, a friend, or a co-worker. And while billions of dollars have been spent working to find a cure for breast cancer, that cure has proven to be elusive. For one thing, there are different types of breast cancer, and many factors can trigger the onset of disease. Yes, women who have inherited the BRCA1 or BRCA2 genes have an increased risk, but it's generally accepted that most breast cancers are not due to inherited genes. Instead, it's the environment that seems to be the biggest factor.
1: Some environmental exposures are pretty obvious. Women who smoke and women who regularly drink alcohol have an increased risk. But at this point in the discussion of causes of breast cancer, there is a fork in the road. The corporate pink ribbon campaigns claim that more research is needed to identify any other types of environmental factors that could increase a woman's risk of breast cancer. On the other hand, independent researchers have identified chemicals in everyday products as possible culprits in increasing risk.
0: Chemicals that make fragrances linger in the air or act as preservatives in makeup or make plastic bottles soft and pliable have all been found to increase the risk of breast cancer. But those chemicals are essential to the personal care products industry. In many cases, the same companies that sponsor the pink ribbon breast cancer awareness campaigns every October. So when a lawyer from San Francisco developed breast cancer, she wanted to know why.
2: I was diagnosed with breast cancer when I was 52. And I got this diagnosis and like many, Other people, I knew very little about breast cancer, although my mother had had breast cancer. And I thought I was, you know, I thought it meant I was gonna die because I remember the stories from, you know, when you had friends in high school and college whose mothers had breast cancer. Um, That was often what happened.
0: That's Polly Marshall, an attorney formerly doing affordable housing and community development work in San Francisco, and now the executive director of Breast Cancer Over Time, a nonprofit organization that's not waiting for more corporate science, but instead organizing breast cancer survivors to take an active part in pushing that research forward.
2: I started going, you know, to the support group at my local hospital while I figured out what kind of treatment I was going to need and ultimately I had three lumpectomy type surgeries chemotherapy for four months and radiation therapy and then I took all the possible combinations of anti-hormonal drugs tamoxifen and various aromatase inhibitors for the requisite like nine to ten years But what happened was our support group was just so important to me and there was a cohort of us who kind of went through. We were newly diagnosed together and we went through our different types of treatment. And when we finished our treatment, we kept meeting and we felt like, whoa, we have just finished doing all this work to save our own lives. And our next thought was our kids. And we just felt like, what can we do so that our daughters and their whole generation and our sons don't have to go through this? You know, we periodically in this group had always asked ourselves, why do we think we got breast cancer? People came up with these theories like, oh, it's because I'm too stressed at my job. That was the most common one. (laughs) And then there was, you know, I took birth control pills starting when I was, you know, 16 and a half or made a lot of people with this from the Central Valley. I rode my bike behind the DDT spraying truck in the middle of the summer because it was cool spray. (laughs) It was, I did hormone replacement therapy or I didn't breastfeed my children, or I didn't breastfeed them long enough, or I didn't have children, or, you know, it's all these things that we blamed ourselves for until we started looking around and saying you know what about this milieu of toxic and chemical exposures that we're all exposed to and that we know genetic propensities or not and none of us had any apparent genetic predispositions we just knew that milieu that we had grown up in had in some way helped bring us each to our cancer diagnosis.
1: Polly Marshall's support group decided they wanted to focus their efforts on kids. They didn't want their kids to have to go through the same ordeal they had just been through. They knew that there were what scientists called windows of vulnerability, particular stages during our lives when cells are rapidly developing and we are particularly at risk for all kinds of hormonal mischief.
2: The windows of vulnerability, you know, are when breasts are growing or changing. And so it's in utero, it's puberty, it's pregnancy, it's breastfeeding and menopause. So there's been a lot of focused attention and that's why we were all so concerned about the personal care products because we all had kids that were, you know, those ages in puberty adolescence. And we were tired of, you know, fighting with them without having the the scientific information.
0: Science is expensive. There are limited budgets And there are those who may not want certain kinds of studies to be performed at all. Most of the major research centers in the U.S. are heavily funded by private industry. And whether by design or not, studies about chemicals in personal care products and their links to breast cancer are hard to come by. But there are some.
2: So meanwhile, when I had my third surgery, my surgeon asked me if I would donate breast cells from my non-involved breast for research into breast cancer, you know, what causes breast cancer. And I did that. And a couple years later, I went back to him and said, what did you use those cells for? And he said, oh, well, we just published this study. We exposed those cells, we cultured them and exposed them to BPA. And we found that BPA attaches to estrogen receptors and it interferes with tamoxifen. And tamoxifen is a drug women take when they're premenopausal if they have hormone positive breast cancer, which attaches to estrogen receptors in breast cells and keeps the estrogen from attaching and stimulating the cells in ways that can promote breast cancer. Most breast cancer research is done with either cancer cell lines or um, rodent rats and mice cells. And all the human studies are really based on correlations. Like, you know, these people were exposed to this hazard and then 40 years later (laughs) they got cancer. And we just like, we're not willing to wait around for correlations to tell us how we can protect our children.
1: A teenager today will be in their late 50s in 40 years. So Polly's reluctance to wait for correlation studies is understandable. But then she met a researcher who told her she was looking to do a different kind of study.
2: So she told us that what they need for their research more than anything were healthy cells from different kinds of women, whether they're you know premenopausal, postmenopausal, but healthy cells from women who've never had cancer and so we looked around and we said you know we can do this you know the same support group of people who you know were now two three years out from our own diagnosis and active treatment that's how we kind of developed this study i mean you can't take healthy young women and give them toxic stuff and then see what happens Thank goodness you can't do that in this day and age. But we figured out this sort of a reverse, a healthy intervention where we invited people to join our study. They filled out questionnaires with everything they used. It was a real education to me of what people put on their body, in their body, their hair, their nails. But at any rate, people filled in these questionnaires with you know, all 39 things that they use. And then we, the breast cancer survivors, you know, all volunteers looked it all up and we used the Environmental Working Group's Skin Deep database. So we selected these volunteers who were already using the bad stuff (laughs) that was labeled as carcinogenic or was a hormone disruptor. And we asked them to give us breast cells and urine samples and blood samples. So they came into a doctor's office and did all that. And then we gave them a kit full of, you know, healthy cosmetics, which were basically, again, ones that we had to look everything up. But basically the the rule was no parabens and no phthalates. And we quickly learned that you can look up all the ingredients in the world and you'll never see phthalates because they're hidden in fragrance and they don't have an obligation to disclose what's in fragrance.
0: So a group of women who had been using products sold in virtually every drugstore and supermarket in America and which contained chemicals linked to an increased risk of breast cancer, gave samples of their blood, urine, and breast cells to be tested. And then they switched to products that didn't contain any of those chemicals.
2: And so they used the healthy cosmetics for 28 days, which was, you know, average length of a menstrual cycle. So we were controlling for the natural flow of estrogen in the body. And then they came back and they um, gave us breast cells and urine and blood again. And each time we tested the urine. You know to see what the parabens and phthalates there and we found that at the end of the 28 days the levels had of parabens and phthalates had plummeted and so that showed us that people were complying with the protocol and we had controls who um, kept using their regular products and at the very end of the 28 days After they'd given their second set of samples, they got the bag of cosmetics to take home. We also showed people the reports that we had run and what products caused them to qualify for our study. But so it was very um, innovative because it was a healthy intervention. And the most dubious thing was asking the controls to keep using their their regular products for 28 days, which again, if you've had a teenage girl and told her to stop using something, (laughs) you're not very successful at that. So there's a lot of people out there using that stuff.
1: The data was collected and the samples from the group of women were analyzed and the results were clear. Stopping the use of products containing parabens and phthalates dramatically altered the body chemistry of the women in the study, significantly lowering the amount of these troublesome chemicals in their bodies.
2: We finally published, and you know what it, it showed was that when you have this healthy intervention and you take away the parabens and phthalates in personal care products that somebody uses, and these were people who used something with those in them at least once a day, every day of the week. And we found that various cellular features that are associated with breast cancer risk changed in the people who changed their products. I mean, it was things like when cells mutate for some reason, when the DNA has a mutation, the cells will either try to repair the DNA, or if they can't do that, they destroy themselves. It's called apoptosis. And we found that the cells at the beginning, before the intervention, didn't repair themselves so much, nor did they uh, destroy themselves as much.
0: Thousands of products that contain chemicals known to interfere with normal body development are sitting on the shelves of drugstores and supermarkets around the world, just waiting for unsuspecting women or young girls to come along and pick them up. Some manufacturers even use words like natural to make their products seem safe. But these products are anything but natural. So what's a mother or daughter to do? Since the power and influence of the chemical industry in Washington is unrivaled, and the government doesn't seem interested in protecting women from chemicals known to disrupt normal development and cause breast cancer and other diseases, what advice does Polly Marshall have?
2: You know, the first thing is pay attention. To what you're putting on your body. Look up the ingredients because whatever you put on your body, it gets absorbed through your skin. If it's something you spray on your body, you know, you inhale it. You know, that's why the fragrances have this stuff so that you will smell it when you're inhaling it. When you inhale it, it goes to your brain. So, um, you know, it, it crosses the blood brain barrier. So anything you put on your body, you should be looking at what's in it. And there's so many ways to do it. I mean, Environmental Working Group has this wonderful Skin Deep database. It's an app on your phone you can get called Healthy Living. You can scan what's in the products and up pops, this is the ingredients, this is how hazardous they are. Or you can look at that database in a different way, like give me the list of all the best ones the least dangerous, and you can look through 20 shampoos, you know, and pick out the one you want. <laughs> the second thing I would say is resist, you know, resist the advertising, resist the peer pressure. You know, we're I'm going to try to get an article in like Seventeen Magazine and Teen Vogue, even though I know their advertisers are not going to be very receptive to what we're doing. You know, the other thing is, is that there's green companies now. Every day, practically, there's new companies opening and be open and receptive to that. You know, you can use something that somebody has made with care for you and it would be great if the cleaner products were less expensive and we're told that the more people who use them, you know, the more the price will be able to come down and we'll be able to reach into the pockets where this stuff isn't as available.
0: Holly Marshall, Executive Director of Breast Cancer Over Time, a nonprofit group in San Francisco that's pushing research forward in an innovative and exciting way. You can read more about their group and their amazing and important study at their website, breastcancerovertime.org. That's going to do it for this edition of Green Street News. Special thanks to our guest, Polly Marshall, our news editor, Ellen Weiniger, our social media director, Donna Moss, our editorial director, Josh Lyman, our engineer, Sam Seaborn, and our marketing director, Patricia Bridges. I'm Doug Wood. Patty and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Street News. Thanks for listening.